0: Good morning, I always worry when I've got this microphone on in the audience that it's going to somehow be on when we're singing and you're going to hear some like swell screeching going on through the speakers, it always terrifies me when that's on. Uh, Before we delve into our passage uh, this morning, I just wanted to mention uh, something that as many of you know, Emily and I have been uh, searching for a home these past several months, we moved up in February uh, and we've been looking for a home for several months now where we can now tell you. That our prayers have been answered, your prayers have been answered, uh, that we now have moved into a flat in Kingston Park. We are officially Kingston Park residents, added to the clan and the list. We are now official shoppers at the Tesco in Kingston Park. Yes, we are one of those couples, one of those families. And we just want to give thanks to God for his provision for us, and we want to give thanks to you guys for praying and supporting us over the past couple of months. And as a celebration for what God has done, we want to throw a little bit of a a, a housewarming at our house, Um, and everyone here is invited. Now, that's a good thing. (laughs) However, the only day that really works for us is next Sunday. Who knows what's on next Sunday? There are two events on next Sunday. There's a Wimbledon final, and there is a World Football World Cup final. Now, we're really going to see who our friends are now, aren't we? We're <laughs> really going to see who our friends are. Now, I promise that the football will be on. I'll be putting the football on. I'll be making sure that it's on. But we would love you guys to come, but we understand that if you might have plans already, uh, you might not be around at all. That's okay. If you can come for five minutes, for five hours, it's up to you. Um, we are going to be probably planning uh, just after the service next Sunday, probably about 2 o'clock from then onwards. We'll have an open house, cakes and tea, free, free to pop in whenever you want to through the afternoon. And we'll probably finish just before the communion service um, in the evening. So if you're able to come, we'd love to see you, just to be able to celebrate with us and to just to see the house. Um, if uh, you want to watch the football somewhere else, then that's okay. We won't be offended too much. Um, and I'll forgive you at some point in the future. But that's all that's okay. No, completely understand. But if you could come, we'd love to see you. If you want directions, um, or if you want uh, the, the address, we're or so just come see me afterwards, I come see Emily, and we'll let you know how to get there. And if you want a lift, um, then we'll be able to sort that out as well. So that will be next Sunday, if we'd love to see you, if you could make that. Now, we just sang, well, a couple of songs ago, we sang a song that actually links really well with this passage this morning. We sang the song Faithful One." faithful one, so unchanging. And I wonder when we sing songs on a Sunday morning, do we really reflect on what we're singing? And do we really mean it, what we're singing? We are declaring in that song that God is a faithful God. He is always a faithful God. Faithful means being reliable. It means that is always worthy of our trust. Do we believe that? Do we believe that our God is worthy of our trust always, that he is a faithful God in all circumstances? Now, over the past couple of weeks, we've been focusing on a character in the Bible that probably you wouldn't describe as faithful. And that character is Jacob. And we've seen that he's probably not the person you would have chosen to do a job. He probably wouldn't be someone you'd want to hang around with. You probably wouldn't trust him. He's a bit of a schemer, a bit of a deceiver. And he's actually known for that because that's actually what his name means. His name means deceiver. And that was demonstrated in his character. As we've read in the chapters in Genesis, he's cheated his brother. He's cheated his father. He's cheated his uncle. And he's had no end of bother with his family. I tell you, if Jacob's life could be easily used as a storyline for a soap, I think. Like his life through those chapters in Genesis is quite mad and erratic and just a bit crazy, really. And he's not really the type of character that we want to see as an example. And throughout his life, he sought to do things his own way and not God's way. And last week with Andy, you looked at Genesis chapter 32 and 33, and you looked at how Jacob needed to be brought down a peg or two. He needed to be brought low so God could teach him that he needed to rely on him for everything in his life. Maybe this morning, there may be someone here who feels like God is saying to them, "You need to have control. Let's have me, let me have control in your life." So we're going to read Genesis chapter thirty-five. If you have a Bible, please turn to it. Or if not, I'll be reading it out to you. But we're going to learn in this passage if God has really broken through to Jacob. Has God really broken through to Jacob? Can we now say that? Jacob is a man who trusts that God is faithful. So I'll read Genesis chapter 35 to you. Then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Then they set out, and the terror of God fell on the towns all around them, so that no one pursued them. Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. There he built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. Now Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and was buried under the oak outside Bethel. So it was named Alon Bacchus. After Jacob returned from Paddan Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I also give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had talked with him. Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. Jacob called the place where God had talked with him Bethel. Then they moved on from Bethel. While they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. Now she was having great difficulty in childbirth. The midwife said to her, don't despair, for you have another son. As she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Ben-Onai. But his father named him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar. And to this day, that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdel Adair. While Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, And Israel heard of it. Jacob had 12 sons. The sons of Leah, Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin the sons of Rachel's servant Bilchar, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Leah's servant Zilpah, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. Jacob came home to his father Isaac in Mamre, near Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where he- Abraham and Isaac had stayed. Isaac lived 180 years, then he breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of years, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried Imagine having 12 sons, dear me, wow. I don't think that's high up on Emily and I's list, but anyway. Amazing, amazing story. And this is actually probably at the point in Genesis where the focus on Jacob kind of lowers a bit. After the chapters after this, it kind of draws more focus onto Jacob's sons. So this is kind of a bit of a summary of where Jacob is uh, on his journey. Now, before we delve into the passage, I have to say that we have got to have a little look at Genesis chapter 34, because a lot of the context of this passage in chapter 35 is based on chapter 34. We're not going to cover it this morning, but just for some context, last week you talked about Jacob's wrestling match with God and his meeting, uh, Jacob's meeting with his brother Esau, and then after that, Jacob and his family go to a town called Shechem. And there some really awful events occur. Jacob's daughter, Dinah, is attacked. And Jacob's sons actually take vengeance on the city. They slaughter all the men of the city. And the whole situation isn't actually handled very well by Jacob at all. And I would recommend when you go home uh, this afternoon that you would have a look at that passage because a lot of what happens in chapter 35, I believe, is based on what happens in chapter 34. But it ends up at the start of this chapter that we've just read that Jacob and his family are in a real bit of bother. And they're in a place where they think that they need to flee because they believe that there are going to be repercussions for the actions that they've just taken. And we've read in verse 1 of chapter 35 that God steps in and says, go up to Bethel and settle there. Build an altar there to God, appeared, who, the God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. Now, throughout Jacob's life, God had been constantly stepping in, constantly preserving Jacob and his family, even when Jacob, more often than not, was a very faithless person. A person who was not very committed to God, or perhaps had not really given God much of control of his life. Now, there's a reason for that. Because in Genesis chapter 28, God had made a promise to Jacob. And we read in Genesis 28 that God appeared to Jacob when he was fleeing from his brother, and this appearance takes place at Bethel. And these are the words that God speaks to Jacob. In Genesis chapter 28, it says this, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you, until I have done what I have promised you. So God appears to Jacob, promises to bless Jacob and his descendants, to be with him wherever he goes, and to protect him, promising to bring him back to this land. Well, here we are in Genesis 35. This is 20 years after the events of Genesis chapter 28, and God has kept his promise for 20 years. He has preserved Jacob, and in verse 1 of chapter 35, he's bringing Jacob back to this land. He's kept his promise. He's looked after Jacob. He's given Jacob wealth and prosperity. He's protected him from the peoples around. He's given him a large family. And God has kept his end of the bargain. But in Genesis 28, we also read that Jacob made a commitment or a vow to God. Jacob said this in Genesis 28, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking, and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. Now, Jacob's kind of almost laying conditions on this promise, isn't he, really? He's laying a bit of conditions on it. If God does this, and if God does this, and if God does this, then he'll be my God. It's a fickle promise, really, but it's a promise that he makes, it's a vow that he makes. But we've seen through our studies of Genesis that Jacob doesn't really stick to this vow, does he? He's someone who is characterized as a bit of a wanderer, a wanderer from God. He hasn't been particularly grateful to God for the things God has given him, and he's continued to scheme, and he's sought after as much control of his life as he could, and left very little to God to control, rather than leaving it in the hands of God himself. And after the events of chapter 34, it could probably be argued that God is stepping in in chapter 35 and saying, you need to be reminded of the promise that you made to me. But more so than that, you need to be reminded of the promise that I made God wants to remind Jacob of his faithfulness to him. That he has kept and will continue to keep the promise that he made. Now, that it's been God that's been protecting Jacob. He's cared for him. He's blessed him. He's made him wealthy. God has done all of it. Not because Jacob deserved it. We've seen that he's probably one of the least deserving characters in the Bible, really. He's not someone that we would probably choose to bless or choose to gift something to. But God has chosen to bless him. Not based on anything of Jacob, but because he's a God who seeks to give and seeks to bless and show himself to people. Now, those of us who are Christians this morning, that should stir something in our hearts. Because Jesus came so that all people may have a relationship with God and receive his forgiveness. And it's not based on anything that we as a person can do or are. The Bible talks of the separation of people from God because of our sin, because of the bad stuff we do, because of the mistakes we make. And we all make mistakes. And we can't get rid of those mistakes. We can't get rid of that sin. It causes a barrier with God because God is holy and pure and right. And God sent Jesus to die and rise again so that sin could be removed. And if we believe and trust in Jesus, that's the forgiveness that we receive. And the focus of that is that God did it himself. We can't get ourselves to be saved. We can't save ourselves from hell. We can't save ourselves from hell. God had to step in. God had to send someone. God had to send a saviour. That saviour is Jesus. We've remembered his sacrifice for us in communion. That his body was broken. and That his blood was shed. Because God had to step in. God did all of it. And the Bible asks us to repent, to turn away from the lives that we're living, and to follow Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is God, and Jesus created us. Jesus created you. Jesus thought of you before the foundation of the world. He created you. He loves you. Each one of us here this morning. And he seeks a relationship with you. Jesus accomplished everything for us. Therefore we should be so thankful. And this is the lesson that Jacob is having to learn in this passage. That it's been God who's been caring for him. And it's been God that's been blessing him. And so God, he summons Jacob to Bethel. And as I'm thinking... Perhaps God this morning is calling someone here back to him. Maybe there's someone here this week who's had a really tough week, a really tough month, a really tough year. Perhaps you've strayed from God, you've wandered from him. Maybe this is a moment that God is asking you to come back. To come back to Bethel, to come back to him, to his presence. To return to a, a good and healthy relationship with him again, Maybe. Recently, I've been reminded that how God has led myself and Emily here to Newcastle. It's not the way I would have done it. It's not over the time scale I would have done it. It's not the way of jobs that I would have done it. It's not the type of opportunities that I would have taken. It's, none of it is the way I would have done it. None of it is the way that I would have planned. And When, I, when we eventually left, it was one of the hardest things we ever did. But what we had to learn through that period was God needs control. God has asked us to give us our lives, and we need to give him full control. And that often means he's going to do things in in ways that we wouldn't understand or we can't explain. Because God wants us to trust him and have faith in him because he is faithful. So, to Bethel, they are called. And Jacob and his family, they need to do something first, though. We read in verse 2 that Jacob says to his family, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel where I will build an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. Now, the peoples around Jacob and his family would have worshipped all types of idols, all types of false gods. And we learn that this has actually had an impact on Jacob's family. And on the way they live. Because clearly some of them have been participating in this idolatry. Clearly some of Jacob's family have been worshipping false gods. And it's even possible that some of them might have even been polytheistic in their worldview. That means that they would have believed in more than one god. That's very possible. The Jacob's family, in this instance, in this situation, were perhaps following different gods. And we've already seen in Genesis in chapter 31 that this was already a trait in Jacob's family because we read of Rachel, Jacob's wife, stealing her father's idols. We don't know know from the Bible why she stole them. But this may be a link as to why. Because there seems to be a divided loyalty in the camp of Jacob. Perhaps their dwelling in a foreign place in Shechem has influenced their behavior and their worldview. The practices of the people have now crept in and often it creeps in so subtly, doesn't it? But note Jacob now insists that they abandon these gods in favor of the one true God, the one who so faithfully cared for them. And it's not a casual decision. It's not like Jacob says, just put them, put those idols in the bottom of the bag, and we'll take them with us, but we'll leave them in the bottom of the bag, and maybe in a couple of months, a couple of years' time, we'll get them out again. It doesn't say that. It says in verse 4 that Jacob or that they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had, and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shekeh. Now we read in those three as well, that they also purified themselves and changed their clothes. This is not some little thing. This is a drastic change, actually, in the camp of Jacob. Drastic change. That even results in a physical changing, in the changing of their clothes. Jacob is actually making a clear statement before God and his family. He wants all defilement and all the impurity that's caused by worshipping false gods out of the camp. He wants a new and fresh start. Even their clothes are changed. Even their clothes are changed. To symbolize the transformation, to show that their allegiance is to Yahweh, the one true God, the God of the Bible. And the worship of these foreign gods has even had an impact on their physical appearance because it talks of these rings in their ears. Now, we don't specifically know what they were, but it is thought they were just a physical appearance of just um, practices of sorcery or practices of false gods. Just a sort of identification, uh, if you like, of a belief in another god. Now everyone would have been able to see those earpieces or those ear uh, rings in the ears of the family of Jacob. When they were walking around, perhaps it was a lot easier to have them in. Perhaps it was as if they had one foot in, In one camp, and a foot in another camp. The family were holding on to something of the world, and something of God. Something of the world, and something of God. Their loyalties are divided. It was probably much easier as they walked around the places that she came to have their piercings in, so it symbolized their worship of the gods, because they would fit in, because they would not be isolated, they would not be looked down upon. It's always easier to blend into the crowd, isn't it? It's always easier to blend into the crowd. And Jacob is here realizing they need to worship God and God alone. And so he buries these objects. And in that culture, to bury something meant the complete abandonment or the disposing of that lifestyle of that thing. It would be probably the equivalent today would be just burning something. The complete abandonment of it. Jacob, if you like, is placing them beyond further use. He's disposing of them. He's actually saying that they are dead to him. They are dead to him. And that then raises the question of whether we, in our lives, have things that we need to bury. Things that keep us from our lives. That we need to ask God, humbly and gently and honestly God, what are the things in our lives that we need to bury? so that my walk with you will be stronger, that my walk with you will be closer. Perhaps this morning there's someone here who's allowing God to have control of some things in your life, but not all of it. It's as if you may be saying in your heart, God, you can have me on a Sunday morning, but the rest of the week is mine. You can't be a part of that. You can have me Sunday morning. You could even have me Sunday all day, but you can't have me the rest of the week. God, you can't be with me when I'm at work. When you leave work for, when you leave your house for work or for school in the morning, do you leave God at your house? Do you leave God at your door? Is he spoken about at your work? Does he even come across your mind? Does he come across my mind? Maybe there are decisions in your life that you won't let God have a say in. Decisions on how we spend our money. Decisions on whether we should get more involved in church activities or in church life. What places I should go. Well, whether my job and commitment to it is meaning my things that are important in my life, things like my marriage or my home life or my church involvement, they're being affected because of my commitment to my job. Perhaps the have a reliance on something, on the power or the pleasures of money on possessions, things that we can get, the gadgets that we have, the clothes that we wear. And these things in of themselves, in and of themselves aren't bad things. But if our motives for them are selfish, then we need to take note. We need to ask ourselves, are, are our identities in those things? Is my identity in the things that I can get? Or how people see me when I wear those things, or if I have those things? If we aren't careful, our identity becomes mixed up in the things that actually mean nothing. And we forget that our identity, 24-7, through the week, through the day, every day, is that we are a child of God, saved by his grace, and a representative of Jesus Christ. That's our identity. And that doesn't stop when we head to work in the morning or come back in the night. You know, Jesus even said that you can't serve God and money. You can't do it. It's impossible. Loyalties are divided. You can't do it. You can't serve two masters, Jesus said. You have to choose. We have to choose. Our allegiance. Is our loyalty this morning divided between God and the pleasures and the things of this world? Perhaps we put our hope or our faith in things which ultimately won't sustain us. Our health. Our job. Our house. Our house. Our spouse, our children. Friends, I don't know what it is. But I've been really struck this week that I really need to take a real look and reflective look at my life. Am I holding on to things of the world and things of God? Are my loyalties divided? I can guarantee you if you ask God what they are, he'll tell you. But it's a very hard question to ask God. It's a very hard question to ask God, what are the things in my life that I need to let go of so that my walk with you becomes stronger, more healthy? It's a very hard question. It's a very humbling question. But I do believe it's a question that the Bible asks us to ask. Because there are things perhaps in our life that are choking our allegiance and our loyalty to God, and we need to pluck them out. So Jacob and his family, they had to bury a whole lifestyle, a whole worldview, a whole culture even, to prepare themselves for meeting with God. What do we need to bury? It says in verse 6 that when they left Shechem to head off to Bethel, the terror of God fell on all the towns around them. If we were a people who surrendered everything to God, buried all of the things that stopped us from being completely loyal to him, Do you not think that God's presence would shine out so much that there would be an awesome presence recognized by the people around us? Do you not think that? Do you not think that they would be inspired as they look at a people who love each other and love God more than anything else? Who submit their whole lives to him because they know that he is the only way, the only way to be sustained. The only way to live life truly imagine what our friends our families would see how they'd be impacted if that was our life every day that we took out the things that were choking our allegiance to god and we replaced them with a love and a faithfulness to him we need to ask ourselves honestly what's stopping me from having a deep more intimate relationship with god and then ask god for help to deal with it now ultimately it can come down to a question of identity as it does here with Jacob and his family. When they arrive in Bethel, Jacob builds an altar to God, and then God appears to him and blesses him, and then God reaffirms what he's done earlier on in chapter 32. He changes Jacob's name. Now, to us, that might seem like an odd thing. He changes Jacob's name, and he changes his name from Jacob, which means deceiver, to Israel, which means he struggles with God. Now, the negativity of his name, Jacob, has followed him all his life, hasn't it? The deceiver, the schemer, the one who wants to have control of his life all the time. That's followed him his whole life. That's been his identity. I think part of what God is doing here, not the whole thing, but part of it, is that he wants Jacob to realize that his identity is changing, that he's now a God, uh, a man who follows God. It's now been replaced by a new name, a new identity. And in this chapter, Jacob and his family have been reminded that it is God who has been so faithful to them. They've been a family who struggled with God, struggled to trust God, do things his way. But he brings them to Bethel to remind them of his love and care for them. And to remind them that he has a purpose for them. He shows this in verse 11 and 12, where God says this to Jacob. I am God Almighty, be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you. And kings will be among your descendants. The land they gave to Abraham and Isaac, I also give to you. And I will give this land to your descendants after you. This verse is so significant. Because this is a promise made to Jacob by God. It's a promise that was given to Jacob's father, Isaac. And it was a promise given to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. This is the promise, actually, that is in the Bible we call it a covenant. And this promise was that if Abraham obeyed God and trusted him, he would make his descendants into a great nation the greatest of nations these descendants now include jacob and his family and god here is reassuring jacob that he is the heir to this promise you see god has always wanted a people for himself did you ever think perhaps why god created the world why god created us he created us because he wanted a people for himself he wanted to share himself with other people he wanted people to dwell with him in community. And since humans have rejected this, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God chose Abraham's family to be a people who were blessed by him and experienced his presence so they could then show to the world the presence of God. That was God's plan. Because the promise actually had another motive. In Genesis chapter 12, God says this to Abraham, all peoples on earth will be blessed Through you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God's actual aim was that all people of the world experienced his blessings, not just Abraham's family. God's aim is that you experience his blessings in your life. God's aim is that you experience him and be blessed by him. God wanted Abraham's family, now at this point Jacob's family, to display to the world what following God was like and to be ambassadors, if you like, for God, so that all people and all nations would be able to encounter God. And today, through Jesus, the Son of God, and a descendant of Abraham, we too can have a relationship with God if we trust in what Jesus has done for us. But more than that, we become representatives, ambassadors for Jesus. Do you know that every morning when we wake up as a Christian, We are going out into a world to represent Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Does the responsibility of that hit you? Does it hit me? When we get up every morning, we are representing Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to the world. We are his ambassadors, our representatives. We have a responsibility to be an example of Jesus to the world. This passage, therefore, is key for the whole of the Bible's storyline because the bro- this promise of all people being blessed through Jacob's family ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Now, chapter 35. It ends with Jacob's family is now complete. Twelve sons, as I said. No wonder you did have four wives. Twelve sons. Now, we've read that he had a final twelfth son called Benjamin. We also read of the passing, sadly, of his wife Rachel and of his father Isaac. And as I said early on at the start of my sermon, the passage now in Genesis now starts to change. It starts to shift into focusing more on Jacob's sons. But I do think there are lessons from Jacob's life that we need to think about as I close. When we now look at Jacob, do we see Jacob as a man of faith? God has been working patiently with Jacob for 20 years, and he's now born the fruit of this in this chapter. And the lesson then for us is this. We should not get too frustrated when we're feeling the struggles of the Christian walk in this life. Because we see, we often look back and we see what God has done, and we often get frustrated. We often feel overwhelmed by our past or our present failures. We often feel downcast. We feel sometimes we haven't gotten anywhere. It's like to challenge us this morning. When you go home this afternoon, look back. Trace the journey where God has brought you, where he's taken you. God is so patient with us. We often are so faithless. We are so much like Jacob sometimes. But God is so patient. In Philippians chapter 1, it says this, And I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Jesus Christ returns. If there's anyone here who is discouraged in their walk with God, maybe you've had a tough week, a tough month, a tough year, a tough couple of years. Maybe there is a sin perhaps in our lives that we keep struggling with and we just can't seem to get over. We need to ask God to help us, but we also need to be encouraged that God is so patient with us And never feel that we can stray too far from God that we can't come back. God is always there. Always wanting us to come back. We just need to acknowledge that. God is never, ever going to be done with you. Never. It's not in his nature. He can't do it. He'll never be done with you. Another thing that we can learn from Jacob is that sometimes we need to stop and reassess our loyalty to God. Are we living with a foot in the world and a foot in heaven? Holding on to things of the world, its wants and its pleasures, while also trying to hold on to God. And we do need to ask God what those things are that we need to bury in our lives. Maybe like Jacob, we need to publicly acknowledge our divided loyalties to our family, to our Christian brothers and sisters, to our elders. I was reading this week that what a man is That in most cases, his family will also be. And for all of us who are husbands and to those who are fathers, I was struck this week of the responsibility that we have to lead our families in the ways of God, to be the consistent spiritual beacon. We have a responsibility before God to do that. Maybe there are some of you this morning, and God is asking you to publicly declare your loyalty to him, might be through baptism. It might be through sharing it with someone in work or in school. I don't know what God is saying to you right now. I know God wants to speak and is speaking to your hearts and minds right now. I don't know what he's saying. I would just ask that as he's speaking, listen to what he's saying. God will always want to speak. Don't think he's not speaking. God will always want to speak. Acknowledge what he's saying to you. A final lesson then, as I close. This morning, we've learned that our God is faithful. Our God was faithful to Jacob all his life. He kept his promise all the way through. This morning, be assured of this. God is not done with you. He's not done. He can't be. It's not his nature. He can't be done with you. You may have thought this week that the you might have felt that perhaps you have no purpose, feeling worthless. God is not done with you. It's not true. God finds you so precious, so unique. He made you. He created you. He has a job for you. Be assured that his work with you is not done. He loves you. He actually loves you beyond anything else. He loves you so much he'll never leave you. Perhaps this week you've been doubting God in his work, his presence in your life, you've been struggling, you've been suffering, you're weary, you're tired, you feel like you're in a storm, and you keep rowing and rowing, the waves are against you. Guys, be assured, he sees you and he loves you, and he's faithful to you. Whatever you're going through in your job. In your home, in your school, in your college, with your friends, with your family, with your teacher, with your boss, in your marriage, with your children, with your parents, with your loss, with your weeping, with your tiredness, with your health. God sees you. He's not abandoned you. Deuteronomy says this. Understand, therefore, that the Lord your God is indeed God. He is the faithful God who keeps his covenant. For a thousand generations and lavishes his unfailing love on those who love him and obey his commandments god is faithful say that in your heart god is faithful. amen, amen. to close we're just going to watch and listen to a little prayer. perhaps as it's spoken think about where you are with god right now think of the things that are in your life that you're finding really tough, give them to God in prayer. Maybe there has been something in your life that God has been asking you to bury because it's hurting you and it's hurting him. In these next couple of moments, admit it to God, confess it to God, let him speak to you. Let's just reflect on God's faithfulness as we listen. Thank you.